changed fate and destiny so much that I actually did alter the course of everything. Wherever I end up after this, in whatever reality, all those moments between us were real, and they'll always be ours, no matter what you choose. Have you ever heard of the butterfly effect? It's this notion that even the smallest of components in our universe can shape the future. The trajectory of something even as delicate as a butterfly has the potential to set off a chain of reactions with earth-shattering consequences. The term has been around for a long time, referenced in chaos theory, meteorology, and countless pieces of literature. We had so many plans for the future. I'll, I'll miss you. And our unwound future. If you ever took a high school English class, you definitely know Ray Bradbury. He wrote Fahrenheit 451. A year before its release, Ray Bradbury published a short story in a magazine called A Sound of Thunder. The story goes as such. For recreational sport, travelers go back in time to the age of dinosaurs to hunt. The tourists' company hosting the time travel has one rule. Stay on the marked path. Any misstep could have dire consequences for the future. Of course, rules are broken. The main character has a misstep, which leads to strange changes when they return home. Most notably, the recent presidential election has flipped results. How did a single misstep off the path change the outcome of the election? The guilty party lifts up his boot to reveal a butterfly. He simply crushed and killed a butterfly. A brilliant glimmering fragment of time, scattering in the moment. A unique moment that you can never revisit, that melts into chaos. This summer, I played a video game called AI The Somnium Files Nirvana Initiative. Human lives are the same, are they not? As is the universe itself. That's what makes life beautiful. It's similar to a choose-your-own-adventure murder mystery. The two villains in the story each lead an ideological society. Two cults that both stem from the same belief. A radical, preposterous conspiracy theory that the world they're in is not real. They believe this life is a simulation, and they're actually trapped within a video game. One faction, led by a woman named Tokiko, believes that they must escape the simulation at all costs. To do so is to achieve enlightenment and reach Nirvana. The other cult does not care about leaving. They believe that they can do whatever they wish because the world is false. It does not matter what they do or who they harm because it's not real anyway. If it's a video game, there's no actual harm being committed. By the time the credits roll across the screen, a lot has happened. The protagonist is unable to catch the true killer for six years, leading to several additional victims along the way. That is not, however, where the story ends. The finale is hidden, right at the beginning of the game, when the main character first meets Tokiko. By the way, would you mind if I asked you a question? What is it? Are you, perhaps, a Freyer? Freyer? I am asking the person within you. What? In other words, the Freyer is the person playing the video game. If you jump back in time to that part of the story, you can change your answer to her original question. She wants proof, which can only be given with knowledge achieved after solving the murder mystery. If the player can prove to Tokiko that they are a real person sitting on their couch, controller in hand, the simulation will break. Everything happened to make this happen. 
and what is about to happen. I have reached Moksha, thanks to you. To thank the player for freeing her from the bounds of the simulation, Tokiko will offer the player a choice. Ryuki is about to return to the original world. Ryuki being the main character. When that happens, you can share this information with him, or not share this information with him. Which do you choose? It's an interesting philosophical dilemma. If the character remembers everything, then he will catch the killer before they claim any additional victims. But six years of time, built relationships, and growth will all be deleted. And of course, the biggest dilemma. The main character will know that none of this is real. He'll know that he's just a piece of code in a video game. In the end, if the player chooses to grant the main character self-awareness, Tokiko will ponder. The boundary that divides the real and unreal is ambiguous. It's all like a butterfly dream. Perhaps you are that butterfly, fluttering as the wind carries you through the air. Video games are a unique storytelling platform. Its law is one and the same. In this episode of On Remand, we're going to talk about the complexities behind video game IP, what makes it different from other audiovisual works, and how the courts can level up their legal scholarship to build a better system for players, artists, game developers, and the future of modding. So let's get into it, let's get legal, and let's talk video games. All the music you're going to hear in today's episode is all video game music, so if you're a big fan, see how many you can recognize. Here's an easy one for you. So before we can talk about video game law, there are three things that you need to know. Number one, IP stands for intellectual property. When you think of property, you think of something physical that you can touch or hold, such as land. There are types of property that you cannot touch. Can you squish stock shares between your fingertips? Can you smell the pine scent of a music note? No, they are not tangible. The same goes for original concepts and designs. This is intellectual property or the idea that you own something that you have come up with. You own your own ideas. Number two, you have the constitutional right to creativity. In other words, the government supports innovation. Progress can only be furthered when we share our new ideas with others. If others could just take the ideas that we share with them, we wouldn't want to share with them in the first place. Those original ideas that you have as property, you can protect in court. Just know that the government isn't going to protect your rights forever. At some point, you're gonna have to say goodbye. Number three, even though IP is something that isn't tangible, meaning that you can't hold it, it doesn't mean that you can just show up to court and be like, hey, I had this idea first. Objection! Judges are not mind readers. They can't just go into your thoughts and figure out which one came first. You have to be able to put your idea down on some kind of fixture, meaning you have to take it out of your head and put it on something physical. Record it, perform it, build it, write the instructions down on paper. Doesn't really matter if it's your original idea and you make it official by writing it down somewhere or describing it. You get my point. It's yours! Take that! There are different types of intellectual property, and with each comes different types of ownership and different types of remedies. This is gonna be a very broad description, so bear with me. When you invent something, you create an entirely new way of thinking. Either a new machine, a new process, a new system, a new program, a new method, something that has a functional use. You get me? This is an idea that you can get a patent for. Patent protections stem from the idea that if you're the one that first conceptualized the invention, then you should have the sole right to create the invention. 
and distribute it to other people as well. In this case, the harm comes from somebody stealing your original idea. They're profiting off of what you did the hard work of thinking yourself. Trademarks are completely different. And here's how I'm gonna explain this to you. The pianoforte is an old invention that has been around for nearly 300 years. Basically, it's got a bunch of strings inside, and every time you press down on one of the white or black keys, a little hammer will hit against the string and play a note for you. The notes that are played as a result of pressing a finger to one of the keyboard keys are not new inventions. Those sounds have been around for hundreds of years. But what if I played for you three notes in a particular order for a particular duration. Specifically, what if I played G, E, and then C? I'm about to play them, so let me know if anything comes to mind. When you heard those three notes, did you think of three letters from the alphabet? Three particular ones? The following program is an NBC special presentation. Or maybe did you picture a peacock symbol whenever you heard it? In music theory, we used to have to do ear training for class, and we would have to learn certain music intervals, which is where we would listen to a sound, and we would have to memorize how far away those notes were. We used the NBC logo. It was a great memorization trick, because we've seen the advertisements several times and have many years of experience with cable TV. Trademarks are all about the association of a sound, an image, a logo, a brand, a catchphrase, even a color. The things that are associated with the market value of a company. And that's where the damages comes in. Although G, E, and C are not original concepts, playing them together most definitely will make you think of the NBC logo. If someone were to try to use that logo for themselves, they would be tricking consumers by making them believe that the products that they are buying are related to the actual company that they are associating it with. In that case, it would be duping consumers and also affecting the market value of the identity of the company. Copyright are original ideas of expression. These are the original designs and artistic works it's also a pretty big umbrella term. It's a catch-all, end-all, be-all for the IP that doesn't really fit anywhere else. But if you think about it that way, you're gonna be lost through the rest of this podcast episode. So think of it this way. If the piano is the invention, then the songs are the copyright. The notes that you play on the piano are sounds that have been around for hundreds upon hundreds of years. But the key is, you may have put those sounds in a particular order for the first time. Maybe someone has played the notes in the exact same order before, but you've written words to it that create an entirely different feeling when you play. And that's how it differs from patents, which are original inventions, things that haven't been created before. With the same mediums, the same colors, the same tools, the same educations, we can all create entirely different creations and entirely different forms of expression. Another type of IP are trade secrets, but that is less important to what we're talking about today, which is video game IP. And video game IP is a mixture of all three, patents, trademarks, and copyright. A lot of the IP areas feel like they blend together in a way that seems impossible to untangle. I have a little sister that's 13 years younger than me, and I used to spend my summers taking her and my brother to different various summer camps and whatnots. 
Although my brother's room was a cacophony of chaos, my sister's room was pretty well kept, except for one corner. And in that corner sat the pile. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it may be the trinket box, the cabinet you never open, the spot under your bed that your vacuum just can't reach. For me, it's the giant pile of papers on my desk that I keep swearing to myself I'm gonna go through one day. For my little sister, it's the pile in the corner of her bedroom where she would come home and she would just put stuff as an elementary school kid in the corner. She didn't have a place for it. She didn't know where it would go. And slowly over time, it would build and build. And once a year, we would have to go through the pile. It was a two-day process, it was very tedious, and oftentimes she was pretty excited to do it because there was a lot of lost things that she had been looking for that it had never occurred to her that she should just check the pile. Video game law is kind of like the pile. The more I started to go through it and study it, the more I realized that there wasn't really a rhyme or reason to it. There wasn't a clear, concrete structure. As a result, there were a lot of tiny, categorical things that were getting left behind, including a definition. There was no legal definition for a video game. So why is that a problem? Well, it wouldn't be if our court system had a good grasp on the industry. I don't question whether they understand legal principles, because they've all gone to law school and passed the bar. It's something within the field that they are required to know. Technology has never been one of those things. It is an external component of the law that often requires specialized knowledge. Under our ethics code, all attorneys have to stay up to date on technology to effectively do their job. Obviously, if a lawyer doesn't know how to open a PDF, that can be a huge problem for their client. But competency is a low bar. Just because you have been introduced to something doesn't mean you understand it enough in application. So everything I just told you about patents, copyright, trademarks, keep those in your mind. But when we talk about video games, we have to think about it a little bit differently. We have to get a little more advanced in our thinking. When I was in the third grade, I had a Nintendo GameCube. So when I sat down at my living room TV, and I clicked the button on the hardware. The hardware then communicated to the software within its machine. The software then sent a display onto the TV for me. This display was both of sound and image. After that, it asks me to click A or press start, or I just simply decide I don't want to play and I turn it off. In that way, there is also a relationship between the machine and myself that is cyclical. So to recap, Player to hardware, hardware to software, software to graphic display, and then graphic display to player. I ended up sorting copyright infringement cases into three piles, technical, substantive, and interactive. Each area of video game IP falls somewhere along the communication process between the video game and its audience. What I've just described to you is a cyclical relationship between the player and the video game. It requires the player to interact with its hardware first, otherwise the GameCube would never turn on. The on button is the hardware. The hardware manipulation causes the GameCube to turn on, setting pre-programmed code into action. The 
relationship between the hardware and the software is the technical IP. Running the selected software causes the logo screen to appear on the television screen. That's the audiovisual display, which is what the player observes and utilizes to make inferences. When I say audiovisual, I'm referring to a category of protected copyright. It's an artistic work that combines elements of sight and sound in its display. It's not necessary for the audiovisual work to include actual sound. It just has to incorporate senses of sight and sound to portray a sense of motion. For example, silent films piece together images that an audience member would observe in succession. Even though they are individual images, their display results in the appearance of continuous motion. It's as if the audience member is actually observing something occur in real time. From that, sound can be inferred in a different way from literary works or mixed media artworks. Like video games, comics and graphic novels are a form of audiovisual work. Panel to panel, they portray spliced moments in tandem with speech bubbles for narration and dialogue. It's different from a consumer reading a book because the audience instead observes and infers the story. Here's where it gets interesting. With video games, what the player observes from the television display is the consequence of their initial action. What the player infers is how that action led to the outcome. For the avid video game players, I'm describing the difference between the rules of a game and the walkthrough you find online. One tells you how to play and the other tells you what an outcome will be if you take specific actions. Think of a card trick, where an amateur magician holds up a fanned deck and asks you to pick a card, any card. The card trick has a set method, which, if done correctly, will lead them to a successful, is this your card? The magician can do the trick with or without you, so the magic isn't in what card you pick. The magic is you, and the reaction you feel when the magician reveals your card. Most audiovisual copyright fits into this scenario. The card trick is the idea, the magician's execution, the performance, and the audience's reaction to the artistic expression. The game may allow for audience participation, but it requires no interaction to execute the trick. However, the expression comes from the presentation of the trick and the reaction. In this way, there is a degree of interaction present. Comic book readers must imagine what is unseen between the panels. Television shows similarly leave it up to the watcher to fill in the gaps. We assume there is a method to the card trick, and we could try to guess how it works, but we're not expected to. The trick is meant to be observed and make us feel a certain way about it. A video game is different. Instead, the magician tells you that they will perform the magic trick for you until you can determine what the trick is. In this scenario, the objective is not to observe the same trick every time. That magic comes from your inference. The inference between the card that you picked and how the magician ended up with the same card. This game cannot be played by just the magician. There has to be another person present for the expression to be complete. So, yes. There is a level of interaction between the player and the video game, but it's on a higher degree of interaction than any other kind of audiovisual work. This is the issue case law has struggled to delineate. It's often referred to as the idea-expression dichotomy. In copyright law, the thing the law protects is the artistic expression, not the process to create it or how it's presented. For any game, the rules themselves cannot be copyright protected. They're a functional idea, and saying that only one person can do it would create a monopoly. The expression comes in its presentation as a whole. In addition to the rules, are the cards, colors, boards, and designs the same? 
In its entirety, Quartz can compare substantial similarities in the offending work to the original game because of its impact on the player's experience. The court calls this the overall feel of the works, which is the protected expression. This is a big problem for the video game industry, where bonus downloadable content games are a recent moneymaker for franchises, and many games are often built from other games. This phenomenon is called modding, where fans of a game will alter its coding. Game mods are often used to change a game's appearance. In The Sims, for example, many players create new downloadable content for other players. They might create new hairstyles, furniture redesigns, or add new interactions for Sim characters in their day-to-day -day lives. I believe the most popular mod I've ever heard of was in the 2011 release of Skyrim. Players created a game mod that changed all of the dragons to appear as flying Thomas the Tank Engine models. But changes to games are not just appearance-based. Some of the highest-grossing franchises were built as complete upheavals of game rules. Defense of the Ancients is the prime example for this. It originated from Blizzard's Warcraft series, which had a feature that allowed players to create their own maps for custom gameplay. A game modder named Kyle went beyond the features of the world editor. He changed the game map, the objectives, and the character abilities. Essentially, he created an entirely new game within the Warcraft world. That game mod became Defense of the Ancients, or Dota, which remains one of the most popular games to date. Additionally, it marks the rise of an entirely new game genre, MOBAs, or Multiplayer Online Battle Arenas. And with Dota came years of complex court battles as courts tried to discern who exactly owned Dota. I highly recommend you look it up after I'm done talking because, believe me, I'd love to get into it, but we'd turn this whole episode into a full audiobook. Can you see why it's critical for courts to have a working definition of a video game? On one hand, Kyle designed a completely new game. On the other, it was a Warcraft mod. One could argue that it remained under the Warcraft IP as substantially similar in feel and design. And game mods don't just do it for the love of a game. Many sell their redesigns and add-ons, which is a hard line for game developers trying to sell their own game mods as major updates and add-on content. I'll admit that a lot of DLC is ridiculous. The Sims currently sells a $10 Laundry Day expansion pack that adds washers and dryers into the game. If laundry's not your thing, you can buy the vacuum stuff pack for $5 instead. But let's keep our eyes on the objective. Future judicial review needs to pinpoint which components of video game development are protected. To do that, they must decide on an analytical process that is, above all else, consistent. I settled on this definition. A video game is an audiovisual work that is electronic in nature and utilizes an interactive relationship with a player to create digital expression. That took me 200 hours to be able to say, and it sure does feel good to say it. But I can simplify it even more for you. It's digital audiovisual that requires active, constant interaction from the audience. If you place two games side by side and compare each of the elements, how are you going to define the overall feel of the works? Any person with a deck of cards can tell you to try and guess and figure out how they do a magic trick. But every magic trick is different. Every card player is different. The deck of cards could be different. There are so many different factors that all need to be factored in. In this way, ideas in the idea-expression dichotomy often act as building blocks to the actual expression similar to the notes that you play on the piano.
If you're going to identify what makes two video games different, you have to consider the video game developer. And you have to be able to voice what exactly the objective is of the video game player. What game mechanics does the developer set in place to get the certain response that they want? Every puzzle has an answer. That intangible thing, that tricky method, that's called the core mechanic of the game. The core mechanic of the game is kind of like its fingerprint. And if you want to know more about it, you should totally read my paper because it's so good. I put so much work into it. But anyway, let's get back to the let's get back to the conclusion. Let's wrap this up. Let's wrap this up so we can all go home and play some video games, okay? Number one, when you start to look at a video game and determine whether there's copyright infringement, you need to be able to ask yourself, is this a technical or a substantive matter? If it's technical, you're really just going to be looking at the coding. If it's substantive, you need to ask yourself, does this involve just a small component of the video game's audiovisual? Is it a video game character, a setting, an element, the art of design? Or are they claiming copyright infringement of an entire work? If you're looking substantively at all of the video game in its entirety, then you're looking at all of the audiovisual. And not just that. You have to compare it to the interactive component designed by the video game developers. Because the reason people pay you the big bucks as an attorney is not to be able to put two games side by side and say, ah, oh, yeah, they look pretty similar. To do your job is to know the market and the industry that your client is coming from. And to do that is to highlight the artistic voice in the digital expression. Thanks for listening to my scholarship speedrun, and have a happy time gaming on. Be seeing you. Until we meet again, goodbye, Freya.